Hey, it's the Great American Folk Show, a little place in the space that celebrates the craft and community of music and art and the people who make it. Welcome, I'm Tom Brousseau, and joining me as he will throughout our sonic explorations is the producer of the Great American Folk Show, Mr. Eric Desperate. Hey, Tom, it is a thrill to be with you today and take your brilliant show and get it to the ears of folks wherever they are in this digital space. I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> and it's great to have the Great American Folk Show as part of your podcast feed. And don't go anywhere because... She rides the eye of the hurricane. The guy who gave us that little folk jam, Mr. David Wilcox, he's going to be on the show. He's going to join us, and he's going to talk about well, the spontaneity of songwriting. And if you're looking for a songwriter to document a person or a moment in your life, well, then David Wilcox is your guy. So stay with us. But we're going to start off with this crazy idea that we had when we first started the radio version of the Great American Folk Show. Now, Tom, your your father, very, very nice fellow, Jim Brousseau, not only is he a retired doctor, but he's a bit of a short story writer, right? He is. I think that that's what he would have done in life <laughs> had he not gone into medicine. He's a big reader and a big writer, and that's what he does in his spare time. And early on, Eric, we aired a couple of his short stories Kind of homespun stories, loosely based on my family's lore. Then you got none other than John C. Riley, the very famous John C. Riley, to read a couple of those short stories. He did a great job, but then you found a wet sprocket. Yes, Glenn Phillips of the Monty Python named Toad the Wet Sprocket. And they came to fame in the 1990s with songs like this one. We spotted the ocean the head of the trail. Toad. They are still playing to packed houses around the world. In fact, they just finished up a big, successful tour. So I asked Glenn if he would read one of my father's stories about the time when President John F. Kennedy came to the University of North Dakota. I, I got to say, it wound up being so good, so impeccably read, that we're pushing for Glenn to have a second career as a documentary <laughs> narrator. So Ken Burns, hey, if you're listening... With the anniversary of JFK's assassination next month, we thought it would be nice to share that short story with you. So here's Glenn Phillips, frontman of Toad the Wet Sprocket, with a reading of When JFK Came to UND. We will serenade our dream while life and boy shall last. Then we'll pass and be Forgotten with the rest. In January of 1962, my mother took me to the county courthouse to register for the military draft. I just turned 18, and all 18-year-old boys had to do that. Mom was pretty blue that day, in part because I was a senior in high school and would soon be moving away to college. But she was also worried worried because there was trouble in Southeast Asia and many young men were being sent there to fight in a war none of us could relate to. I know she felt the same way when my brother had to register the following year. My dad was worried too. He had fought long and hard in World War II, the war, as we still called it, and he didn't want either of his boys to have to go through what he went through. But it was our duty to register for the draft and go fight if we were called. No one in our family thought it would be right to resist. 
Since I was in good health, I got a 1A classification, meaning I was fit to go off to war if called. However, our president then was John F. Kennedy, and he had proclaimed that young men could get a deferment from the draft if they stayed in college and kept their grades up and got their degrees. That meant at least four years, and surely the fighting in Southeast Asia would be over by then. Everyone loved President Kennedy. We called him JFK. He'd been in the war. He'd written a book about it that we all read in high school called Profiles in Courage, about great American heroes. He'd started the Peace Corps, and he'd recruited role models such as the Olympic champion Rayford Johnson to inspire young people to do great things. We were all inspired by JFK. So I went off to college at the University of North Dakota with my draft card in my wallet. It said I was now 1 AD, meaning I would be deferred from the draft as long as I was making progress in college. But I would still have to check in with the draft board every year. Once in college, all freshman boys were required to enroll in ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training Corps. We called it ROTC, and we had to take it for at least two years. We were issued uniforms, and we had to learn how to march and shoot an M1 rifle. Twice a week, we took classes on such things as map reading and military tactics. We were taught the chain of command and told what was expected of us if we were ever taken prisoner by the enemy. Our instructors were veterans of the Korean War, where they had all been non-coms, non-commissioned officers, and none of them had ever been to college. They were skeptical of us young college kids, especially to think that if we did go into the service, we would go in as second lieutenants. They were skeptical of our ability to lead other soldiers in combat. All of us in ROTC were skeptical of that too, but most of us did not foresee that we would actually be called to serve once we finished school. Some of my classmates were more inspired by the thought of military service, and they stayed in ROTC for their junior and senior years also. They became platoon leaders for the underclassmen. Most of these upperclassmen entered the military right after college, and many were sent directly overseas. So that's how it was in September of 1963, when I was just starting my sophomore year at UND, when we heard that the President of the United States, JFK himself, would be coming to UND and speaking in the field house on campus. Tens of thousands of people were expected to be present in hopes of catching a glimpse of JFK and all of us ROTC students were going to be part of his security team. We were going to be in charge of crowd control. When I think about it now, putting 18 and 19-year-old college boys from North Dakota in charge of anything seems ludicrous, and we were going to be helping protect the President of the United States. That's almost in the realm of fairy tales. When the big day came, all of us gathered outside the field house to get our assignment. The president and his entourage would be coming in by helicopter and landing on the softball fields adjacent to the field house. A thousand boys, all dressed up like little toy soldiers, would be linking arms and surrounding the field and pushing back against the throngs of spectators. We were told to keep our backs to the crowd and under no circumstances were we to allow anyone to cross our lines. It was critical that we not break rank, for that might allow the crowd to swarm the president. No one imagined anyone would want to purposefully harm JFK. The worry was that he'd be hurt by someone who loved him too much. Our platoon leader, a guy named Phil, told me to stand near the point where the president was to exit the landing field. He did it as a favor to me, and I never knew why. The president flew into the Air Force base west of town and came to the campus by helicopter. A few minutes before he landed, we could hear the sound of the chopper coming in. 
It was exciting, and it was scary. I was standing next to my friend Bill, whose dad was a professor at UND. There were thousands of people crowded in behind us. They were already starting to push against the line. We held tight and braced ourselves. Just one single chopper landed, but it was a big one, and it made a deafening noise. Once it was on the ground, we watched as JFK and his bodyguards got off and were met by local officials and politicians. After a round of handshakes, they piled into a couple of Cadillac convertibles and headed right towards where I was standing. JFK ordered the car he was in to stop when they got to our line, and he got out and started reaching across the ROTC guys and shaking hands with some of the spectators. He wasn't supposed to do that, and the Secret Service guys who surrounded him looked nervous when he did. They were the toughest looking men I have ever seen. And there was the President of the United States, just a few feet away from me, reaching out to his adoring fans. It was a beautiful day, but it seemed like the sun's rays were all focused on JFK. He was all aglow, smiling and reflecting the light onto the people he touched. And then, without warning, my friend Bill let go of me and the other guy on the side of him and walked towards the president. He must have looked very suspicious to the Secret Service, and they muscled him out of the way, but not before he shook the president's hand. I had grabbed the guy who'd been positioned on the other side of Bill. We were really straining against the surging crowd, but we held on, and we didn't let Bill back in line until the president had entered the field house. We were all disgusted with him for breaking rank. Once JFK was inside the field house, the crowd outside relaxed a bit, but we kept our arms linked, just as we were told to do. There were thousands of people waiting for the president inside the field house. They cheered for a long time, and when he spoke, they seemed to break out in cheers about every five minutes. After about an hour, JFK emerged from the field house and got into the waiting car, and this time they drove right to the chopper. JFK didn't shake any hands this time, but he smiled and waved to the people, and they all went wild. Everyone loved JFK, Republicans and Democrats alike. All of us ROTC boys held strong as the president boarded the chopper and lifted off the field. Then our platoon leader came and told us we could disperse. But the people who'd come to see the president stayed for a long time, talking about what they'd seen. Everyone knew that Bill had broken rank, the only one of the thousand ROTC students to do so. We figured he'd get some kind of punishment, but he never did. And really, what could they do to him? Give him a dishonorable discharge from ROTC? He was a college student. Some of us thought he got off easy because his dad was a professor. Who knows? The worst part was, Bill never showed the slightest remorse for his behavior. In fact, he bragged about it. And that's what I'll always remember him for. Yes, I was jealous too. He had actually touched the president. President Kennedy spoke at the university September 25th. All university afternoon classes have been adjourned and the Johnstone Fulton dance have been canceled. The campus, like the nation, is only slowly adjusting to the shock. Good afternoon. Two months later, JFK was riding in another motorcade in Dallas when he was shot and killed by a sniper. All of us who'd been on campus when he visited us were appalled. Everyone in the country went into mourning. But we knew that nothing like that could have happened at UND. People from North Dakota would never even think of such a thing. My friend, the deserter, Bill, was in a bad accident later that year. He was injured to the point that his draft status was changed to 4F. That meant he would never be called to serve. And Phil, the guy who stationed me where I'd get to see the president up close, he graduated and went into the service. 
He was sent to a war zone in Vietnam. One day while he was on patrol, he was shot and killed by a sniper, just as JFK had been. Years later, I went to see the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. I knew his name would be engraved there somewhere, but I never saw it because I couldn't remember his last name. And I guess that's the way life is. We meet and mingle and laugh together, and sometimes we share momentous experiences. But then we go our separate ways, and a few years later, we don't even remember each other's names. And then, like it says in the Whiff and Poof song, we pass and are forgotten with the rest. So since you can't seem to get your eyes dry after listening to that piece, let me ask you this. Is there a piece of music that makes you bawl like a little baby? That brings a tear to your eye. Let me know at officialtombrousseau at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. But Eric, since you're right next Ah. to me here, what about you? What song is it that makes you cry? We're having a good time, and now we're going to cry <laughs> right. over here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was just listening to this one the other day, Tom. It was on my uh, my shuffle mix, and this is a song. I mean, there's a lot of songs that can make me cry, but I, I usually have to be pretty focused and, and tune to them, listen to the whole thing. You know, a good Pink Floyd album could do that for me. But just hearing a few bars of Ron Sexmas Rickenbacker guitar on this tune, Strawberry Blonde, can get me without even hearing the words because... I know the story to it, and man, it just undoes me every time. Here's a little bit of uh, Strawberry Blonde by Ron. When all eyes were upon her, she took her seat. Her name was Amanda, with pretty eyes of green, hair blonde, strawberry blonde. So yeah, it's like the song's like a little vignette. It's like a movie in three minutes and forty-one seconds to be exact. It's about Ron's childhood crush, a girl named Amanda, a pretty girl with a tragic upbringing. Her mom was addicted, and spoiler alert, she didn't she didn't make it. So years later, and, and just the way he writes, it's like so descriptive. It just it just plays like a movie. You can visualize this in your head. That's the, that's how great of a songwriter Ron Sexsmith is. So years later, Ron is on a trolley somewhere, a streetcar, uh, and he sees Amanda with uh, a little mini me of Amanda, her daughter named Samantha, who looks just like her. You know, hair of blonde, strawberry blonde, as he says. Then I heard Amanda say she got up. Come on, Samantha, girl, this is our stop. And they were gone to strawberry blonde. And that last line just that's what undoes me completely. It, it's a happy ending. Amanda gets to be the mom her mom couldn't be to her, and they walk away, we think, happily in an ordinarily mundane moment in life. But with Ron's observational songwriting on the trolley, it's just such a beautiful moment. You know, just just talking about it just gets me worked up a little bit, Tom. Uh, So, all right, all right, you're the star of the show, so it's your turn. This is what your fans want to know. What is the song that moves you to tears and why? I'll tell you that in a second, but I have to tell you, you mentioned Ron Sexsmith, great songwriter that he is. 
I remember when Elvis Costello like proclaimed like how wonderful of a songwriter this Ron Sexsmith was. I remember that too. Remember that he did. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> I, I forget what album it was of his that came out when I first started listening to him. But a couple of years after that, I opened up for Ron Sexsmith in Southern California. Oh wow! What you was mentioned that like? he was a great songwriter. Yeah. He was also a really solid guy too. Was he as warm as his lyrics would suggest? Or? He he was like uh, I mean he's got this boyishness quality about him. Uh, looking at him, these features, he kind of looks, he looks like this kid that I went to elementary school who just kind of never really grew up. He's just got this eternal, youthful look to him. But yet, on the inside, this wisdom of like, I don't know, Hank Williams or something like that. I just had to to let you know. Oh, that's awesome. You because know. not not always is a songwriter also like a really solid individual, right. Ron Smith. And I'm sure you, you would know, and not like we're going to not dish on some of that <laughs> at a later point here in this Great American Folk Show podcast. But, yeah, you know, it brings to mind for me another song of his that doesn't necessarily maybe, maybe move me moves me a little bit to tears. Reminds me of Peter Gabriel's Don't Give Up. That's another one. Uh, but Lebanon, Tennessee, off his self-titled album, and just about a man trying to find worth in the world through work, and, 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 and he was kind of a super tramp going around the country trying to find a job. I mean, and again, a short song, but just says so much. I think what we're trying to say is, Tom, Ron Sexsmith is an incredibly underrated songwriter. He is, as is Glenn Phillips, an underrated narrator. And i got to <laughs> tell you, there's a little connection. Okay, so one time I was having a discussion with Glenn Phillips, and out of nowhere he said, do you know how great of a songwriter Ron Sexsmith is? And oh, he was wow. talking about one of his songs. And I was just thinking, yeah, but Glenn, do you know how great of a songwriter you are? I mean, you know, great songwriters, I think, are great songwriters because they find the glory in other great songwriters. They tend not to have any ego. I don't know. That's well, my you, little You know what's great about Glenn? Because it reminds me of this interview I read with Glenn. <laughs> Walk on the Ocean, which I think is like this profound, like sea shanty type song. Like there's some something deep and profound in it. And he says, maybe he's just being modest or doesn't want to give too much away. But he says, it's just gibberish. It's just like word salad. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Far from it. That yeah. guy has got the wisdom of a thousand year old person. Yeah, I think he doth protest too much, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, you asked me about yes. the song that makes me cry. We want to know. There's a number of them. But, you know, as I was thinking about this, while we were talking about Glenn and Ron and all this, I was thinking about the song Lilac Wine. Do you remember that oh, song? Oh, yeah. Well, I know the Jeff Buckley version is the one that I always think about. And for many people, it doesn't get any better than that. But like these great songs that are written, it's, a lot of times other people have covered it. So I, too, listened to that Jeff Buckley version on the record, Grace. Yeah, Grace. And, and eventually I got back to this version uh, recorded by Nina Simone. And, uh, you know, there are no words to describe it. Nina is such a powerful singer, a great, you know, narrator of songs. And, uh, well, let's just take a little listen. Listen to me. I cannot see clearly. Isn't that he coming to me? sweet and 
so hazy Isn't that he Or am I going crazy dear Lilac wine I feel Now, all right, now that you're a complete mess <laughs> listening to the Great American Folk Show. I need to try the tears uh, from my eye right now. I know, I know. We're dabbing. So, Tom, who do we have next? An artist whose story will move you as well. Her name is Denisha, and she's going to talk about how the honesty of country music appealed to her just as a little toddler. And I can speak from experience how joyful it is to find your musical family, your musical community, fellow artists who get you, who see you, who kind of see your soul and think, all right, yes, we're the same. You're coming from where I'm coming. You'll hear Denisha's story in her own words in just a bit, but let's start off with this live track, really beautiful live track that she recorded for the show. It's called All the Sweet Tea. Time is ticking like it always does. It flies right right over us there is nothing you can do to quell to stop that girl from running like hell all the sweet tea and Carolina all the sun that comes to dry up all the Peaks in Colorado They're waiting there They're calling out our names What I've been missing Is your tender touch Cause if I've got you Then I have enough I don't want to waste it Precious nights We never know the day When we're gonna Peace. 
When I was growing up, music was always a part of life. I was raised on the outskirts of Houston, like way out. We spent a lot of time in the car, driving to my grandparents in the big city. My earliest memories of music are of the Smokey Robinson, Al Green, and Righteous Brothers tapes that my mom used to play in the car. Luther Vandross always made his way in there too. When I started to really lock in was when country radio found its way on our FM dials. And one day it stuck there. Driving down county roads up and down I-10, 146, cruising across the Houston Ship Channel, my soundtrack for movement became George Strait, Reba McIntyre, Randy Travis, Trisha Yearwood. And the cow pastures and strip malls, hospitals, schools, churches, refineries, all passed by my young eyes to the tune of Amarillo by Morning and She's in Love with the Boy. These quick pictures of the lives of my neighbors, fellow Texans, travelers, people I would never know, a kaleidoscope of stories in our shared humid Gulf air, all tied together by the sounds of Alan Jackson piping through the speakers of a 90s model suburban. As a teenager, I made my way to college in Nashville. I was an advanced student of a young age, so I was 16 years old in a new city playing my first open mic nights shoving my way through crippling stage fright with one vision in mind. I wanted to be a part of this world. Post-graduation, I started touring around the Southeast and playing local clubs around Nashville. I made most of my friends through the music scene and collaborations, and I carried that method of relating on to my relocation to New York City. I landed in Brooklyn in a house full of other artists, musicians, producers, visual artists, filmmakers, and we made our own scene in that South Brooklyn Victorian home. I made electronic music, indie rock, soul, jazz, and R&B. And my journey in sound commenced through a myriad of flavors and genres. And I was doing it. I was a part of that world. And it was a wild and beautiful ride. Several chapters of life later, I found myself one among billions in a life-altering quarantine, grasping for some sense of sanity in an uncertain world. My coping mechanism was the music of my youth. I reached out desperately for the feeling of calm, the feeling of home, and the feeling of my two feet on the ground, and the feeling of a great damn song. I started re-immersing myself in the sounds and stories of country music, and I started writing my first album in the genre, entitled Highways. Being removed from a normal sense of community due to the absolutely upending nature of the pandemic and my dramatic shift in genre, I looked up when the record was done and realized I had no scene to be a part of with this music. And that's when the Black Opry came calling. I'd heard of Black Opry through the grapevine and I admired what they were doing. 
But when the founder, Holly G, called me to come do a Black Aubrey review tour, I felt something click. Something I longed for. The day I laid eyes on my Black Aubrey tour mates, something locked in. In the moment we played our music in a round on that first stage that I shared, I knew that this community embodied the feeling that I had when I was first drawn to music. This feeling of being part of something far, far greater than myself. The Black Opry is a collective of Black artists in country, Americana, and folk music. The collective materializes in live form, traveling in groups of four or five, bringing writers in the round shows to clubs and theaters across the country. The movement has brought together songwriters that overlap in style and some that couldn't be more different from one another. The feeling at performing at one of these shows has been like none other for me. The beauty of being Black, coupled with the passion for acoustic guitars, banjos, fiddles, and great human stories, all weave together to form an experience with each other that leaps past things we might normally have to explain. Our audiences get it too. In those shows, we're sharing an experience of something incredible. Human beings telling stories and the poetry thereof through song and voice to other people from any number of different walks of life. But the through line that joins us in that experience is the experience of the human condition. And in those rooms and in those moments, our songs and our voices are far greater than ourselves. They transcend our own recounting and connect effortlessly with the experiences and affinities of our audiences. And in those moments, we're each other's neighbors, fellow humans, travelers, and people we might never know, all connected to the story of a song. Today, as I say this, I'm grateful for the community of music at large and for the community of artists that I have found now and over the years. My only mission is to make beautiful music that's true to me, that moves people. The unknown future is full of song and endless possibility, and I'm forever grateful and forever glad that I'm not alone. Hey, old friend, do you remember singing everywhere we would go? Late nights on the main lawn, we fell asleep. A time or two Lately I've been staying up late At home to hear Annie on my stereo And I'm wondering what you're doing And if time's taking off on you too Oh, life really puts you through the changes. There was something in each other that we could always see. I could have been. A better friend You'd be more than a stranger to me Now I'd like to pretend Do you ever wonder What this life could be Without a couple of killer songs you were singing like an angel And I bet 
Artist we think is rising. Denisha is her name. Hope you enjoyed her live session and talk on the Great American Folk Show. Hope you're enjoying what you're hearing so far. Make sure you subscribe, 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 so you don't miss an episode. The next one, I've got the date right here, will come out on November 11th. Subscribe to the Great American Folk Show podcast wherever you get your favorites. And Eric, I bet you will agree with me when I say be sure to tell a friend. That's how that's how we make it. That's how it works in this world. And speaking of friends, acclaimed folk musician David Wilcox has made a brand new album to give a big shout out for the love of the musical community that keeps him going, that sustains him, as he puts it. He's calling the solo record a great title, My Good Friends. Mm-hmm. We're pretty darn thrilled to have him on the show. Oh, and If you need someone to write a perfect song for you, well, David Wilcox is your guy. If I was playing music just for you, I would ask you, so how's your day? How's it being you today? 
what's showing up. Because the best thing is the right song at the right time for the right person. And at this point, I have so many songs. And they were written for my own healing about this and that over the years. But I love the spontaneous songs. If I don't have one that suits what you need right now, I would just ask you a few questions and then I'd make up a song on the spot. I love winging it like that. There's a beautiful sense of trust. And I do that sometimes in live concerts. I will play songs that I know, that I've written, and of course, I'll also make up a few. And I think it's fun for the audience to watch me walk out on the tight wire with no net. <laughs> I love that process of trusting and listening and making up a song on the spot. And I also do custom songs, which are different. They're not spontaneous songs. But a while back, somebody contacted my manager and said he needed a song that was kind of like therapy because he couldn't always get to the therapist right when he needed to. He needed a song that would change the way he was thinking about what happened and the way it felt. I thought that was an interesting challenge. So we talked on the phone for an hour or so. And then I spent the next three days finding a way to reframe that trauma in a way that made it seem like more like an adventure and less like some victim story. It was a song that delved into old pain and somehow was able to change it, to metabolize it and make it into things that were usable, like compassion and wonder and, and joy. And so I mentioned on my website that I had done this and then someone else called and then someone else. And now I've done about 60 of these custom songs. And it's always an honor to use the skills that I've developed in service to other people's stories. And I get a lot of great songs out of it. <laughs> and I love how, for the sake of the music, we're able to be brave and really talk about what matters. And to me, that's been the best thing. I love songs that are the start of a good conversation. And this new collection of songs that I'm calling My Good Friends includes one custom song and a lot of songs that are just really good for stirring up, bringing my heart to life. That's what music is for, for me. I hope it serves you well, too. Here's a song about surviving some childhood adventures when other friends didn't. I got shot at two different times, both times they missed. Lady Luck was looking good that night, but I'm the one she kissed. We were dancing at the edge of it all, but I had the knack. I could lean into the endless fall, I could touch it and still turn back. Now I can't help wondering how I got so lucky again thinking about the death of my good friends. We were seven kids speeding in a country squire laughing and feeling free. I yelled, stop the car, I got out right there. Then they went and hit that tree. 
So I was standing by the side of the road Just thinking I was a worrying fool Probably went through the windshield And never showed his face at school Now I can't help wondering How I got so lucky again Thinking about the death of my good friends It was a war zone getting through high school We were blowing up one at a time So I was safer at the back of the pack Walking through the buried mines All the angels working overtime What the hell would we do next? Diving into shallow water Someone's gonna break their neck Now I can't help wondering How I got so lucky again Thinking about the death of my good friends I'm always checking on the exits You watch me when disaster comes I ain't saying I'm a hero, but you can follow me when I run. I guess it isn't such a mystery how I got so lucky again. Thinking about the death of my good friends. Thinking about the death of my good friends. David Wilcox there, and the title track was the new one, My Good Friends. We're glad you're a friend of the Great American Folk Show. Thanks for listening, and thanks for subscribing, if you have already. And thanks if you are one of those folks who have given us the encouragement over the past couple of years for the radio show and who have said to us, hey, would you get this thing up on podcast already? And, well, (laughs) we have thanks to you. Big thanks to our talent producer, Mary Jones, and to our director of radio, Bill Thomas, and to our sponsors, John and Elaine Andrist Charitable Trust, the Blair Flegel Estate, the Lorac Family, and Minkota Power Cooperative. And of course, our producer, Mr. Eric Dethridge, who is riding shotgun with me. Hey, Eric, thank you. Hey, thank you, Tom. And you know, I gotta say, like, I, you know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of musicians over the years, and I truly mean this, and you'll be humble because I say this. I've never met a musician more humble than Tom Brousseau, and it's a pleasure to work with him and get this podcast going. Hope you are enjoying it, and uh, we look forward to you putting your ears to this again. We'll catch you again on November 11th. Thank you.